ever spent much time listening to NPR, you may be familiar that there is a uh, segment, or a, I don't know if you'd call it a show, or at least a segment on NPR called Marketplace. And uh, years ago, back in 2007, Marketplace ran a, uh, a story on the modern application of the Sabbath year in Israel today. And so uh, one of the uh, speakers on the show said, agriculture policy is tough enough in any case, all those subsidies and crop quotas and all that stuff, but try this one for just a second. What if every seven years farmers just stopped farming, took a nice long break, let their land lie fallow for a whole year, just such an agricultural sabbatical began recently in Israel. From Jerusalem, Daniel Estrin reports the devil is in the details. And, uh, and this story then went on, and Daniel Estrin was, uh, was there uh, in, in Jerusalem, and he uh, was speaking to a rabbi, a rabbi quoted from our text in Leviticus 25 about the, uh, the Sabbath rest for the land. The rabbi said, and that's a fantastic vision, to rest and to leave the normal secular life, vocational life for more spirituality. Let the business life rest. And then Daniel Estrin says, but people need to eat and farmers need to make money. And so what what do they do in Israel today? He went on to say the main solution involves a slate of hand. The Israeli farmer sells his land to a non-Jew with the understanding that he buys it back in one year. That way the Israeli farmer continues to work the land, except technically it isn't his anymore, so he isn't violating the biblical law. Jews have been doing this for a century, but many ultra-Orthodox Jews, like this one who shops in Jerusalem's outdoor market, say it's a sham. And so this, they, they interview this ultra-Orthodox Jew who's like, no, 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 this is, this is not a right way of approaching the situation. Uh, and then apparently there was a, a third way of approaching the situation, which was, uh, was basically a, describing a, a kibbutz bordering on the, Gaza, on the Gaza Strip, and uh, this man named Eric Orlov oversaw that, and what they did was they planted rows and rows of dill, celery, spinach, and lettuce, but they planted them in pots on top of the ground. These pots were placed on plastic sheets, and these pots were up on the top of the ground, and in Orlov's words, the soil in the pots is artificial, so there's nothing growing in Israeli soil. The rabbis gave their stamp of approval. And uh, the segment ended with uh, uh, the uh, man from NPR saying, his land may be resting this year, but Eric Orlov is working as hard as ever. Now, as we'll see tonight, the... Uh, the application of the Sabbath laws as described there in modern-day Israel is nothing like what we see in Leviticus chapter 25. And so we'll be looking to Leviticus 25, which not only describes the, uh, the Sabbath year as prescribed in the law, but also along with it the year of Jubilee. And as we, as we do this tonight, as we, as we look to this chapter, we need to recall that the legislation here is in some sense civil law, mosaic civil law for the land, and also in some sense ceremonial law. And as such, uh, this is pointing ahead to Christ, 
and ultimately finds its fulfillment in him, not in the current practices as described there on that NPR marketplace feature. So let's, let's look to the text, Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, first of all, let's look to the first 24 verses of Leviticus chapter 25. So uh, Leviticus 25, uh, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food. Yourself, your male and female slaves, your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. You are to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, and you shall sound a horn through all your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property." And each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, You shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely in it. But if you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat the old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. 
Now, obviously, here in these verses, we have a description of two, two different events which were to be regular occurrences in the life of Israel. And the first, obviously, is this Sabbath year. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, you'll notice there how the Sabbath year is framed in a way that is reminiscent almost of the fourth commandment uh, in regard to the Sabbath day. There's six years in which you sow your field, you prune your vineyard, gather in the crop, but during the seventh there is a Sabbath to the Lord in which these things are not to be done. And the provision of food then for the Sabbath year was to come according to verses 6 and 7 from what sprang of itself during the Sabbath year. They could eat the Sabbath products of the land, which meant that they could gather what was produced even though they were forbidden from sowing their fields and pruning their vines. And the commandment of verse 5 seems to be given not as an absolute restriction of gathering anything in, but rather it seems to be a restriction from, from gathering in a harvest and storing up. It seems that they could, they could go out almost, as it were, in the days of the manna and gather a day's provision, and, uh, but they weren't to, uh, weren't to gather in, uh, not to, uh, to harvest it and, and store it up as they did in the other years. And uh, verse 6 seems to indicate that they're able to, to gather Sabbath products, but it's interesting to note that they're to do so in conjunction on on equal footing, as it were, with their slaves, with their hired men, with the foreign residents who were aliens among them. Obviously, they're to leave the gleanings of the vineyards and the fields every year, but it seems that during the Sabbath year, they were to, uh, to be even more sparing and to, to go out day to day uh, on the landowners on a level, on a level footing, as it were, with, with their hired men, slaves, and, and so forth. Uh, John Gill went so far as to see this as a, as a type of the communion of saints in which Jew and Gentile, high and low, slave and free, share equally in the blessings of salvation that come through Christ. And we also see from verses 18 through 22 that in addition to what might be gathered on a day-to-day -day basis, the Lord promises to provide an abundant harvest on the sixth year for his obedient people. He says, You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. And so the sixth year would provide this bumper crop and supply not just for the seventh year, but on into the eighth and into the ninth as well. They were to be obedient to the Lord and then watch the Lord provide. Even as they had to make the apparent sacrifice of allowing the land to be unfarmed for the year, they're to trust the Lord and then watch him provide. And this has uh, an echo that occurs later on in Scripture. The circumstances are, are different and the, the command is, is different, but if you think to the context of Malachi chapter 3, the Lord there is not addressing the Sabbath day, but rather the giving of the tithe. But nevertheless, the promise is much the same, where the Lord says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Just as they were to trust the Lord in regard to the Sabbath year, trusting that God would provide for their needs, so also the Jews of Malachi's day were encouraged to give the tithe so that, uh, in a way, that they were trusting the Lord to, to provide abundantly for them. And there's a lesson here that we can trust the Lord and obey even when it seems contrary to worldly common sense. The Lord will take care of his people in accordance with all that he has promised. 
And so if God has commanded us to do something, we need, we need to obey and trust that the Lord will provide accordingly for our needs. And then the second event that we find in these verses is the, the year of Jubilee, described there in verses 8 through 17. And this is to take place on the, the 50th year, the year after the seventh Sabbath year. According to verse 9, this is to be announced by the blowing of a ram's horn on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That blowing was to announce the kickoff of the year of Jubilee. And in the words of verse 10, it was to proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. And Lord willing, we'll speak of that release in particular as we uh, work more through the chapter in a few moments. But we can summarize it as verse 10 does by saying that this was a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. And even, even just in that summary of verse 10, if we were to stop there, I think there's something that is that's quite beautiful and quite wonderful in it. Now, obviously, my own experience is unique to me, but as I think of this, I think of it as someone who myself was raised in a rural context and spent many countless hours on family land working with family. And now here I am 500 miles away from both the land and the family, my father and mother and brother. And these words speak of a, of a great restoration and a great home going. And if earthly restorations are wonderful, then how much more wonderful is the ultimate restoration toward which the year of Jubilee is eventually pointing, a restoration to the Father of our spirits, the God who has made us for himself, an adoption into the family of God, which is brought into effect by our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And there's something that is quite wonderful, even in the literal event of the year of Jubilee, let alone that of which the Jubilee foreshadows. And this year of Jubilee has certain similarities with the Sabbath year as seen in verses 11 and 12. No sowing, no reaping, no gathering from the vines, but they could eat from the fields what grew of itself. And then verses 13 through 17 give us a bit of a picture as to how this is to function in the civic life of Israel with regard to the sale of the land. If someone sold land to a friend, the, the sale was not permanent. The sale was more like a lease. As verse 16 shows, the price of the land in the sale was to be proportional to the number of years before the jubilee in which that sale occurred because it was essentially a number of years of crops, not the ground itself that was being sold. And so just by, by contrast, there's a, a real estate group that operates here in Maryland and in some, uh, some of the surrounding states. They sell uh, forest land and, uh, and farmland, and, and they're called the Land Group, and their motto is, we sell dirt. That was, that was not what happened back in ancient Israel. There was no true sale of dirt. It was rather a number of crops, or another way of speaking it, the right to farm the land for a number of years until the Jubilee uh, would occur. And so if there's a long time until the Jubilee, that would increase the, uh, the money that was to be transferred in the sale because there was a greater number of years of crops that the seller was selling. The lease was longer. And if it was a shorter time until the Jubilee, the price should be lower because the number of years of crops would be smaller. 
And the verses 23 and 24 go on to serve as a reminder that even though the land would be divided out among the tribes of Israel, the land ultimately belonged to God and not to them. They would still be aliens and sojourners, just just like their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lived in tents and were, were sojourners in the land. And this was even the case with their descendants as well. And David recognized this reality in 1 Chronicles 29, 15, where he prayed to the Lord, We are sojourners before you and tenants, as all our fathers were. In other words, even when times were in their best at the promised land, these people were not home yet, not in the true sense of the word. And if they understood the law rightly, as, as David did in First Chronicles 29, they, they understood this, that they were in the land, they were in the promised land, but they were not ultimately home yet. They, like Abraham, were looking ahead to that city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. The land that they had received was pointing them to the true rest which is found in Christ and to their true and eternal home with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, now let's look ahead in the, the chapter to some of the other uh, particulars related to the year of Jubilee. And what I'd like to do in our remaining time is to read through uh, these descriptions of the, the legislation for the redemption and the treatment of the poor, make a few comments along the way, and then conclude with just a few words uh, about how the year of Jubilee should point us ahead to Christ. So, uh, so let's look at verses 25 through 28. Verse 25, if a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient uh, for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man who sold it and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert that he may return to his property." And so in these verses we see uh, this law for the redemption of the land. If you have this poor man who becomes poor and has to sell uh, his land in order to provide for himself and his family, he could redeem it if he had the means to redeem it before the year of Jubilee. Or it might be redeemed by a family member. But in case there is no redemption, then the land reverted at the Jubilee to its original owner. But again, this Reversion was no misfortune to the buyer because they understood up front what they, were, what they were getting into. They understood when they paid for it that they were buying a number of years' worth of crops. And so there's no, there's no bait and switch or dishonesty at all going on. They understood the system and they understood that if there is no redemption, this is going back to the owner or the owner's family at the year of Jubilee. So let's look down then to, to verses 29 through 34. Likewise, if a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, then his redemption right remains valid until a full year from its sale. His right of redemption lasts a full year. But if it is not bought back for him within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city passes permanently to its purchaser throughout his generations. It does not revert in the jubilee. The houses of the villages, however, which have no surrounding wall, 
shall be considered as open fields. They have redemption rights and revert in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites have a permanent right of redemption for the houses of the cities which are their possession. What therefore belongs to the Levites may be redeemed, and a house sale in the city of this possession reverts in the Jubilee for the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the sons of Israel, but pasture fields of their cities shall not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. And so we learn here a couple of things. One, that houses within the walled cities could be redeemed, but only for a year. If you have to sell, you've got one year to get it back. After, after that, the sale is permanent. The house is not coming back to you in the year of Jubilee. There's no explicit reason given in the text for this. I think, uh, I think the reasons given by Matthew Poole are probably as good as any. He says, the reason is from the great difference between such houses and such lands. The reasons alleged for lands do not hold in such houses. There was no danger of confusion in tribes or families by the alienation of houses. The seller also had a greater propriety in houses than in lands, as not coming to him by God's mere gift, but being commonly built by the owner's cost and diligence, and therefore had a fuller power to dispose of them. Besides, God would hereby encourage persons to buy and possess houses in such places which uh, frequency and fullness of inhabitants in cities was a great strength, honor, and advantage to the whole land. And so in other words, the land itself was the gift of God to the people, but the houses in, in the walled cities were, uh, obviously God gave them, uh, gave them the grace and supplied them with the means to build these houses, but it was not merely a gift. There was also human effort and exertion in these. And, uh, and, the, uh, and so there may have been an element of, of that going into uh, to this law with respect to houses not returning to their owner in the year of Jubilee. But the houses in the villages, as we find later in this section, would go with the land and would revert in the Jubilee, according to, to verse 32. And then verses 33 and 34 give particular stipulations about the Levites. The houses of the Levites would revert in their cities in the year of Jubilee, and they were not permitted to sell the pasture fields of their cities. And so if you, if you think back to the, the, the division of the land uh, as apportioned out after the conquest, the tribe of Levi received no particular allotment of land. They were given particular cities in which they might dwell in, and uh, a little way stretching out from them uh, pasture lands, around their towns, and they couldn't sell those pasture lands because those pasture lands were not theirs as individuals. It was kind of a, kind of a village green, as it were, where all the Levites in the village could probably graze their sheep and cattle out on those lands, and you couldn't sell it because uh, your next-door neighbor was going to be grazing his sheep out there as well, and so it didn't belong particularly to you. But their homes were individually theirs and were essentially all that they possessed as individuals in as much as they did not possess any allotment of land. And so their homes would revert to them in the Jubilee. Now let's consider the, the case of, of the poor here, uh, beginning in verse 35. We'll look first to verses 35 through 38. Now in case a countryman of yours becomes poor 
and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver at interest, nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And so here we see the the common concern, which was to characterize the nation for the members of their own nation and also for the strangers and sojourners who were with them. And there's a requirement here that interest was not to be charged to a brother, a countryman, in these circumstances. And it seems that from this law and others in the the Pentateuch like it, that it became, uh, at least to some extent, axiomatic by the time you get to the medieval church that it was wrong for Christians to charge interest on any loan at all. And even, uh, even at and after the time of the Reformation, some Lutherans and some Reformed theologians even maintained this opinion that it was wrong to... Uh, to charge interest as a Christian. Now, certainly more could be said on the subject of interest and banking than I will say tonight, but at the very least, I think it must be borne in mind that the charging of interest, according to the Pentateuch, is not always inherently sinful. And so the law in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 and 20, makes an explicit distinction in regard to a countryman versus a foreigner. Interest could not be charged to a countryman, to a brother Israelite, but interest could be charged to a foreigner. And when it comes to issues that are absolutely moral in and of themselves, there's no difference between an Israelite and a foreigner. And so, for example, the command, you shall not murder, applied equally whether the intended victim was an Israelite or a Philistine. You can't can't murder a Philistine. You can't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going out to murder a Philistine today. Can't do that. Same thing for you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Issues that are absolutely moral, doesn't matter who who the victim is, who you're robbing, who you're killing, who you're lying to, you can't do that. And so the fact that the Israelites could charge interest to foreigners should tip us off that the charging of interest is not inherently morally wrong in any and all circumstances. The situation and circumstances need to be taken into account. I think uh, Francis Turretson was helpful when he said that usury should be distinguished. One kind is biting and immoderate and fraudulent. In our context, think, uh, think the guy on the corner in the city saying payday loans, right? And he's got some thug enforcer out to, to come beat you up if you, don't, if you don't pay him off. He says one kind is biting and immoderate and fraudulent, which without any regard for equity and Christian charity is unmercifully exacted from every borrower, even a poor and reduced person, or one who has suffered some great loss in his property, which renders him, without any fault of his own, unable to repay. That's kind of bad interest. Another is moderate and helping, in which such moderation is used as is conducive to the necessity, advantage, and gain acquired, or usually acquired, By the benefit of a loan of both the lender and the borrower, it answers to Christian equity according to the mode prescribed by the magistrate in relation to places, times, and persons, for these vary in different countries and among different people. In other words, there is a way 
of making a loan, charging interest on the loan, paying interest on the loan, receiving interest from the loan, however, uh, whatever your relationship in that situation is, that is not inherently sinful, but can actually be beneficial. I think probably, probably the best example in our context is the buying of a home. How wonderful is it that here in our country there is, uh, there are legally enforced interest rates by which one can purchase a home that you don't have the funds for. And then a few years later, after you make the payments, the home can be yours. And this wouldn't be able to happen if we weren't able to, to take loans. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, this law could never uh, be binding where money is borrowed for purchase of lands, trade, or other improvements. For there it is reasonable that the lender share with the borrower in the profit. The law here is plainly intended for the relief of the poor. So, in other words, no, no loan sharking. Suffice it to say, interest is not always morally wrong, but it can be when the interest or the terms are unreasonable. And we must keep in mind that the Lord takes seriously when the poor are mistreated and we can't take advantage of them. We need to keep that in mind. The law makes that abundantly clear. Now let's, let's look ahead to, uh, to verses 39 uh, through 55, down to the end of the chapter. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family, that he may return to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over him with severity, but are to revere your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you, then, too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens, among whom you may gain acquisition, and out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land. They also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. Now if the means of a stranger or a sojourner with you becomes sufficient and a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to him as to sell himself to a stranger who is sojourning with you or to the descendants of a stranger's family, then he shall have the redemption right after he has been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's sons may redeem him or one of his blood relatives from his family may redeem him, or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He then, with his purchaser, shall calculate from the year when he sold himself to him up to the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall correspond to the number of years. It is like the days of a hired man that he shall be with him. If there are still many years, he, he shall refund part of his purchase price in proportion to them for his own redemption." And if few years remain until the year of Jubilee, he shall so calculate with him. In proportion to his years, he is to refund the amount for his redemption. Like a man hired year by year, he shall be with him. 
He shall not rule over him with severity in your sight. Even if he is not redeemed by these means, he shall still go out in the year of Jubilee, and he and his sons with him. For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now here, obviously, we have the case in, uh, of a situation in which an Israelite would become so poor that he needed to sell not simply his land, but also himself as well. The law clearly allowed for this eventuality, and it's clear that Hebrews who found themselves in this situation were not to be treated by their countrymen as slaves. We see that in verse 39, not subjected to a slave's service. Verse 40, uh, that he should be with his fellow Hebrew as a hired man. Verse 42, not to be sold in a slave sale. And verse 43, not to be ruled over with severity. But again, as with interest, so also in this case as well, there's a distinction that held between the Hebrews and the sojourners or aliens among them, verses 44 to 46. According to the law, those from the nations could be used as slaves, could be given by an Israelite to his sons after him, could be, as the text says, permanent slaves, in distinction from the Hebrews who had sold themselves into bondage. The Hebrews served to the year of Jubilee. And then verses 47 and following describe the redemption of a poor Hebrew from that situation in which he had to sell himself to a foreigner. Whether he or his kinsmen were able to redeem him, uh, if so, he could go free. If not, he would go free in the year of Jubilee. Now, obviously, this raises uh, larger questions about the subject of slavery. Um, For now, suffice it to say, slavery has existed in more just and unjust forms, sinful and allowed forms. But the sin of man-stealing, kidnapping, is condemned in both the Old Testament, Exodus 21.16, the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.12. Mosaic law gave the death penalty for man-stealing. And as we see here in this chapter, the Mosaic law also permitted men to sell themselves into servitude. And it permitted Israelites to have slaves of the nations. Another uh, form of slavery in the Mosaic institution was what we find in Exodus 22.3, that if a thief could not make restitution for what he had stolen, he was to be sold for his theft. And for whatever it's worth, as things currently stand, even Amendment 13 of the U.S. Constitution allows for the possibility of enslavement or involuntary servitude in the case of a person who has been duly convicted of a crime. I've spoken more broadly on the subject of of slavery and scripture in a sermon on 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, and if you're interested, that's uh, that's on the website. But for now, though, let's, let's return to the subject at hand which is this year of Jubilee, which is, again, this special time of restoration, this special time of being set free. And thus, Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Messiah in this way in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, Isaiah 61 doesn't explicitly reference the year of Jubilee, but some have thought that there is an allusion there, at least to it, in this expression, the favorable year of the Lord. And certainly in the things that Isaiah prophesied, those things are the kind of things that take place in the year 
of Jubilee. Liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, this great return, this great restoration of things as they ought to be. And of course, as we know, when Jesus began preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, he quoted from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he said there, Luke 4, 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so just think for a moment then about the similarities of what happened at the year of Jubilee and what happens when a soul comes to Christ. In the Jubilee, a person who had gotten themselves behind the eight ball, so to speak, is restored. Their land comes back to them. If they have to sell it, their freedom is restored to them. If they had lost it, they are no longer debtors. They are restored to family. And thus, in Christ, we are restored to the image of God. The Holy Spirit begins the work of conforming us to the image of Christ, who is God himself. In Christ, we are forgiven. In the words of Colossians 2.14, God has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're set free from bondage to sin and to Satan. Because as Jesus says, he whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. John 8, 32. We're brought into the family of God, as we find in John 1, 12, that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We receive the adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so all of these come to a believing soul when he or she comes to Christ. And when Christ returns... These blessings, which are already ours, which we taste of now, will be ours in a more deep and more full and final way. Then we will come to the great homegoing. We will return to that inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, which is kept for us in heaven, as Peter speaks. And so when we think about the year of Jubilee, let's think about this great restoration to things as they ought to have been. And let's see how that points us forward to Christ and the great restoration of all things in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace. We thank you that though in this world things are so often bad, Things are so often not what they ought to be. And yet you bring restoration in Christ. The debt of our sins is canceled. We're received as your adopted children through the work of Christ, our elder brother. Father, we give thanks for what we see here in the year of Jubilee and its beauty. And Lord, we pray that that would point us ahead to Christ. And not only to those blessings that come to us as believers, but also the great fulfillment of these blessings, which will be ours when we are with him forever. And we praise you that Christ came to seek and to save what was lost. We give praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.